I'm Cullen Burke, and this is Cauldron, a history of the world battle by battle. Again, thank you for listening. I'm your host, Cullen, and you're listening to Cauldron, a history of the world battle by battle. Today, we have a pretty interesting battle for you. It's the story of the Second Battle of El Alamein in the dusty deserts of North Africa, where the desert fox is about to get his ass whooped by the desert rats. But first, let's go over some quick housekeeping. January, we'll have one more episode. Um, This is going to be the Battle of Karania. Finally, I've got to it. And then the first season will officially wrap, and I thank you all for listening, submitting, reviewing, rating, all of the little things that you've done to help me along the way. I'm going to spend the month of January off trying to get February's episodes all done, all four of them hopefully done in January, so that there will be more of a regular schedule. The goal will be to get the, the February episodes done in January, March, get them done in February, and so on. So I'm a little bit ahead, and you'll get your content. The other thing to think about is if you are into uh, pictures, maps, videos, and want to take some cool hypotheticals or uh, participate in polls, Go to the Instagram, search Cauldron. Uh, I'm up there. I post daily. And with the polls, you have a little bit more of a hand in what we cover. Uh, I pretty much take it to the people and put a couple of choices for each uh, each battle. And whoever gets the most votes, that's what I'm going to be covering. So check that out on Instagram. This episode is going to be the first two-parter. I'm going to release them both in one go, but it's a big, big beast of an episode, so I'm going to release it in two parts. This episode is the first two-parter of uh, Cauldron, so enjoy both of these. I'm going to release them on the same day, so you'll get both, but take them at your leisure. I will uh, make it, hopefully I'll find a good breaking point and make it so that the story will flow pretty evenly. The sources that I used for the Second Battle of El Alamein are as follows. I used uh, Max Hastings' book, Winston's War. Obviously, Max Hastings, uh, Hastings is a phenomenal historian, but he's an even better writer. His books are just quick. They read really well. He has a great tendency to make them into, uh, make historical events into stories and not just uh, an accumulation of dates, times, and names. He also has this really great thing where he he really reaches out, at, at least in this particular book, Winston's War, he kind of digs out into the average Joe. And so there's a lot of great letters from just, you know, random people who 
happen to be talking about these massive events that are happening on the world stage as if uh, as if they were talking about their their nephew going to college or their local team winning you know winning the the, the championship and so it gives it a kind of earthy grounded feel uh, which is important for history i think uh, the other books that i used are peter young's the victors which is a, a really great book it's got a lot of great images a lot of great maps it's um it's it's really colorful in terms of its presentation, but it is a bit old. I warn you, it's I think it's late 70s, early 80s, so it's definitely got a little bit of that uh, Cold War shine to it, which is, I think, kind of fun and interesting, but some people think it's uh, a little dull. But again, it's got some excellent bios of Rommel and Montgomery in there, so check that out. Amazon, super cheap. Uh, the other books that I use, uh, one of them is called Battlegrounds. This is by a Michael Stevenson. This is one of my favorite books in my collection right now. Uh, it's particularly helpful with a battle like uh, Second El Alamein because the terrain and the understanding of the geography is really important with this battle. And uh, Stevenson's book does a great job of, of, of kind of drawing a picture and explaining to you why the geography is important. And uh, it just it's it's extremely accessible. Um, he, he does a wonderful job. He picks each uh, each chapter is based on a different geographical uh, t- type. So you've got the jungle, you've got the desert, you've got the plains, wooded areas. And so he, he just picks them apart and makes it really uh, makes it really interesting. And, and it kind of gives you access to what a commander might look at or a general might look at, or an officer, or even a regular soldier, might be looking at when he's taking in the terrain and his surroundings. And finally, as always, I used my boy John Keegan's book, The Second World War. It is a classic. He is a classic. As often as possible, I like to use John he- uh, John Keegan because he really makes history uh, fun. He makes it digestible. He makes it uh, interesting. He has gravitas, he has wit, and uh, every time I read his books, I feel like I walk away understanding things more and wanting to understand things more, which, again, is, I think, an incredibly important aspect for a historian or a, uh, a writer of history to, to incorporate into his, uh, into his books. Okay, that's enough of the housekeeping. That's enough of the business. Let's go to the hot arid deserts of late summer 1942 where a desert fox is trying his best to kill some desert rats and it's up to the desert rats to band together and destroy the fox So Hitler in the early stages of World War II was obviously cruising. He had a hot hand and things seemed to kind of fall his way at every turn. Poland, Norway, the Low Countries, and even seemingly uh, mighty France all fell pretty rapidly. Hitler was capable of twisting events and bending fate to uh, his very whim and in a mystic 
persona kind of grew around him that uh, Goebbels and the Nazi propaganda machine really tried to drive home and prop up and, and uh, try and show the world that Hitler was the kind of man who didn't just direct events, he made events. And it probably seemed like just another one of his victories when his one-time idol turned ally, turned, you know, little lackey, Il Duce, uh, Benito Mussolini, decided that it was time for the Italians to take on some of the burden of the war. And therefore, I'm sure, uh, little Mussolini hoped for some of the glory to rub off. The plan was to expand the Italian Empire in North Africa, and, and ideally throughout the Mediterranean as a whole. Hitler probably even considered it a bit of a twofer. Get the Italians some action, pumping them up a bit, and also tying down considerable British uh, resources far from mainland Europe while he settled into the task of murdering its population and trying to subjugate the, uh, or eventually trying to subjugate the Russian, uh, the Soviet Union. But if the Brits were beaten, great. They would be even more alone in, after losing North Africa. Uh, Hitler also looked at it like this. The, the German Wehrmacht would have access to huge oil and resource reserves. The Italians would have proven a formidable ally. The Soviets, again, would have new strategic nightmares to deal with. Um, the Americans would be less likely to get involved with a lost cause and probably a little bit more, uh, uh, more trepidatious about pursuing any course of action that would uh, get them directly involved with the German army. So then maybe they end up facing Japan a little bit more seriously at the beginning of the war, or at least that becomes their uh, main st strategic goal. And then, of course, the control of the Suez Canal would bring Nazi-led world dominance, you know, that much closer. The campaign in North Africa, though, was never really a major strategic point of Hitler's. But as events uh, for the first time got away from him, he was kind of forced to bend more uh, attention, uh, invest more resources, uh, invest more men, and eventually it would become a hotspot for not just the, the Nazis, but the world's attention would be focused on these dunes in the deserts of North Africa. So Hitler was faced with a choice. Uh, initially, the fighting went so poorly for the Italians, and it's, it's really one of the um, kind of strange twists of the war where everybody assumes that the Italian army is going to be at least serviceable. Maybe not on the same scale as the Wehrmacht or, or some of the other great powers, but at least they could, you know, uh, make a go of it in the field. And it turns out that they're just not even in the same, they're, they're not even playing the same game as the other major powers. The Italian troops are poorly trained, they're poorly equipped, and even more so, they're poorly led across the board. Uh, their, their armored divisions and vehicles are almost comically um, poorly designed. And so the Italians make a real hash of it in North Africa, and the Axis powers really take a hit. And to keep it from becoming this um, clear-cut victory for the Allied powers, Hitler is forced to send a Band-Aid 
to bolster his weakling ally, and that Band-Aid became known as the Africa Corps. The Africa Corps was led by the brilliant and rising star general Erwin uh, Rommel, and at first it was only on the scene to hold the disintegrating Italian army from disappearing almost entirely. Rommel's genius and speed turned the strategic situation around completely, and in some ways made him actually a victim of his own success. Berlin and Rome began to believe that Rommel was so capable and so handy and so tricky, he could essentially pull victories out of thin air. And so he was not in, according to Berlin, not in as much need of men and material as maybe a slower, less successful general might have required. At the Battle of Gazala and the taking of Tobruk, Rommel delivered smashing blow after smashing blow brilliantly and basically unnerved the entire British army at every level. And even he was able to shake the entire country back home, the home front, and shake their belief in what they hoped for, which was ultimate victory. So by the end of the summer of 1942, Erwin Rommel and his Africa Corps had pushed the British forces out of Libya, back through Egypt, almost all the way to Alexandria. It was at this point a change occurred. At the first battle of El Alamein, the British held their ground and made a stand and were able to stop Rommel in his tracks for the first time. Using the unique land of North Af Africa, and the Egyptian desert itself, the British had figured out a way to stop going backwards. The battlefield of both the El Alamein battles was the same, and it is basically, it's, according to Stevenson, it's roughly a 60-mile-wide uh, line that's, or, or, I'm sorry, it's 60 miles west of Alexandria, and a 35-mile-long flat land of rocky but compact dirt, which is key, because compact dirt or sand is really good for tanks. To the north or top of the battle line was the Mediterranean Ocean, so that flank was covered. And to the south or bottom of the line was a massive mix of salt marsh and soft shifting sand, which is really bad for tanks. They tend to, uh, they tend to sink in it, and also the, the, the sand blows into all sorts of gears and whatever and becomes a real mechanical nightmare for the tank, uh, tank commanders and the, the men who have to service the tanks. So, And this salt marsh and mix of soft shifting sand was, is known as the uh, Katara Depression, which is naturally occurring. So if you picture a line going uh, north-south, at the top is an impassable uh, geographical uh, quality, and at the bottom of the line is an impassable geographical uh, quality. So with both flanks covered and impassable, the British were able to create a strong defensive line and hold fast at the First Battle of El Alamein, setting up what would become uh, the most important and essentially only Allied victory to this point in the war. The 
uh, desert fighting that happened in 1941 through 1942 is is really it's got to be incredibly hard and I know that's an understatement of course but I always think of the African war as this weird almost Victorian colonial fight with these um, pale northern Europeans just getting absolutely roasted by the sun and blinded by the unrelenting uh, sand reflection and then just the monotony of the land uh, must be overwhelming and just bearing down on you constantly. But, uh, of course, unlike in my imagination, because obviously I've never been there and I have no idea what it looks like, the desert in North Africa, especially where this battle was happening, is not uh, not at all monotonous, um, especially in North Africa. There's uh, shifting soft sand dunes, there's uh, ravines, salt flats, sea cliffs, mountains, and flat fields of just wide expanses of rough-cut, loose boulders. Where, and in each one of these different spots or different uh, terrain features would, would see heavy battle throughout the North African campaign. At uh, the El Alamein front, there were a number of ridges that run uh, east-west. So f- uh, if you picture the battle line running from north to south, running across that or intersecting that line are a number of these ridges, and these these will end up playing an incredibly important role throughout the battle, as each one of them become hotly contested by both sides, simply because their elevation. I mean, these aren't even hills. We're not talking. We're not talking hills at all. We're talking just slight, gentle rolling rises on the horizon. But because the the of the flat surface of the battlefield. These little gentle rolling um, elevations would give whoever possessed them a, uh, a dominating view of their opponent or their enemy and be able to really not just direct fire, but if you were able to put enough artillery and armored weapons on top of these little ridges, you could really uh, do some serious damage to enemies that would have little to no ability to strike back at you directly. So, once the two sides regrouped after the first Battle of El Alamein, they began to really hunker down and build up their defenses. In desperate attempts to break through, Rommel, who really could see the the situation as it was developing and recognized that the Africa Corps and the, the Nazi army was essentially in, uh, in between a rock and a hard place. They, uh, they spent the rest of that late summer and early fall trying to pound their way through the British line, looking for any kind of soft, weak spot that they could punch a hole through try and expand it in the line, and and again, make a breakthrough. And this is what Rommel was great at. This is what he excelled at, was this fast-moving, kind of keep your enemy off balance, move move with incredible speed, and appear in places where your enemy didn't expect you. And that's what he was trying to do, uh, to really uh, keep the British from, to keep the British 
from making their line at El Alamein as strong as they possibly could. Obviously, that sounds like basic 101. You don't want your enemy to get comfortable, but Rommel really was a master at that. But he kind of met his match, or at least the uh, the he met the immovable object at Alam Hafa, uh, which is one of those slightly elevated ridges we were just talking about. And it, it basically was... Uh, he just mashed his head up against a hard wall, and eventually Rommel was decisively repulsed at Alam Hafa, and he was forced to discontinue offensive action. The reason that he was forced to discontinue his offensive actions is because his lines of communication and supply were at this point stretched to, uh, I would say, beyond the breaking point. His lines of supply were incredibly long. At this point, they basically ran all the way back across the coast of North Africa, hundreds of miles back to his major supply depots. And that by itself was, uh, was, would, meant that anything that he needed, guns, ammunition, food, equipment, uh, vehicles, men, a key thing would be petrol and gasoline, all of that had to travel to him at the front line and would take time doing so. The other thing to keep in mind is that the RAF, the Royal Air Force, would, for the most part at this point, they had a a pretty significant uh, aerial command of the battlefield, but they were also able to play havoc along his battle lines. And throughout the Battle of the Second El Alamein, the RAF kept command of the skies above uh, above the entire battle line, which... Uh, allowed for the British to move fairly freely in terms of uh, not being afraid of, of not, well, not necessarily being afraid of uh, Luftwaffe retaliation. So the other key aspect about the supplies having a hard time reaching Rommel is that the British had established at, uh, at Bletchley Park the uh, code-breaking um, using Ultra, which gave... Uh, this is one of those things, we'll definitely cover this in, in a, another episode, but the ultra-code-breaking allowed the British to have a almost historically unprecedented access to enemy information. And uh, Dan Carlin brings it up a few times where the, the ultra-code-breaking is this weird thing that the British just, they every single war whether it be Napoleon, whether it be World War One, whether it be the Second World War, throughout the Cold War, they really do this code-breaking stuff well, and it's no different here at in, in the uh, North African campaign. Because uh, between the uh, Royal Air Force and then obviously the Royal Navy commanded, for the most part, the Mediterranean with uh, Gibraltar and uh, Malta being in their possession, they were able to really... Uh, again, play havoc with the uh, access shipping across the Mediterranean, but they were only really able to do that because they had this great intel coming out of the ultra ultra code breaking. And so they were uh, able to find and destroy access shipping with incredible accuracy and doing it at times before the access even knew that they were supposed to be receiving that shipment. So uh, it really, really plays a huge role in this battle because with everything running short from gas to guns, men to armor, Rommel really has to abandon this offensive and 
he he has to basically stop in his tracks and begin the process of creating defensive lines of his own. Uh, and he definitely did that. He he recognized that uh, the the stronger his defensive lines were, the more that they would at least mitigate some of the numerical superiority that the British were going to be able to bring down to bear on the German lines once they went on the offensive. So one of the things that he decided upon that would hopefully try and at least, if not make up for a lack of armor in in terms of numbers, would allow him to know where the enemy attack was coming by creating a almost geographical barrier of his own, which was he was basically laying thousands and thousands, if not maybe hundreds of thousands of mines. And, and these landmines are still being found in uh, up and down this battle line today and being forced to be removed by uh, specially created uh, removal groups. Um, and in these fields of mines, they were ranging sometimes two miles, but as, as, as wide as five miles in depth. He also had his engineers set up clever little tank traps and anti-personnel traps, and these, these little traps and mines and, and clever little uh, disguised um, vicious booby traps would eventually be called uh, the Devil's Gardens. So as Rommel is digging in and tending to his gardens and getting his Nazis ready for the uh, in, impending attack, the but while well, their belts are getting tighter and their, their petrol is running out, So while Rommel is tending to his little devil's gardens and getting his men prepared for the impending attack and laying his mines and traps and whatnot, the English, or the British, 8th Army on the opposite side of the line was preparing to, uh, to take the fight to the enemy. To this point in the war, the British army had been often beaten, regularly had retreated, but had never quite been defeated in any mean, well, not meaningful way, but never had been truly defeated. There was always hope, and in large part that was due to one man, that would be Winston Churchill. He had led pushed, and even dragged his country into the reality of a war that he had seen coming for a decade, and essentially held his nation together throughout the dark early days of the fight. But by 1942, a certain amount of disenchantment had settled into the British people, and to their armed forces as well. Uh, essentially, there was only so many times that Winston could say that they would eventually win this war and then have to turn around sometimes within 24 hours and report another disaster in the field. He had also at this point become allies with the Soviet Union 
And there were quite a few people at home who were not happy about that union. As Churchill was a extremely outspoken, um, ex extremely outspoken detractor of communism, it seemed to a lot of people at home that this was uh, a strange bedfellow for, for Winston to uh, make in Papa or Uncle Joe there. So his popularity had taken a severe hit and it was kind of on the fritz. And there were a lot of people who had been grumbling since he had taken over about his meddling in affairs and his, uh, his ability to switch sides quickly. And it's at this point in the fall of 42 where there haven't been any victories. There hasn't been anything to be excited or happy about. And so the detractors or the people who opposed Churchill started to feel a little bit more comfortable about making their thoughts and feelings more widely known and being a little bit more outspoken about that. So the people of, of Great Britain and the Empire and the Commonwealth, they really did need a victory badly for just their psyche. Hitler and the Nazis had been on a roll. If you look at their invasion of, of the Soviet Union, there was nothing coming out of there that was any good. There was no good news for the Allies across the board. America was still far off in the distance, uh, and, and the fear was that they wouldn't be able to contribute very much anyways, or at least not for another year or two. So uh, the, the home front was suffering. The British Army also needed a victory, maybe even worse, because after a while, uh, failure starts to have a stench all its own, and the British Army at this point in the war stank. There, there just had to be a major change in the way that the British Army viewed itself and, and even fought if it wanted to have a chance against the, the German Wehrmacht and the Axis powers in general. And that change did come about. It came about with the appointment of a man named Bernard Montgomery, and he would become the commander of the British Eighth Army. Montgomery was highly intelligent, he was arrogant, he was tactless, he was also bursting with energy, he was also fearless. With his uh, wonderful way with words, Winston would later say of the man, quote, in defeat, unbeatable, in victory, unbearable, end quote. Monty, as he was affectionately, affectionately called by his men, believed in over-preparedness to the point of making his men go almost crazy with preparation. And this was a policy that he would carry through the entire war. And he also believed in training to a degree that had not been previously seen by the British Army in North Africa. His shorter supply lines, we talked about Rommel's extended supply lines, well, Montgomery's were far shorter. He would be able to receive as much supply as he needed because of the control of the, uh, of the waterways by the British Navy, access to the Suez Canal, which was a direct lifeline to supplies coming from India, Africa, New Zealand, and South America, uh, or, I'm sorry, in from Australia. And his uh, access to these readily available supplies made his preparation and buildup for this great offensive uh, fairly simple. All he had to do was make sure that the, the Germans didn't break through that line and uh, basically sit on all these resources that were coming in from 
all over the empire and the various commonwealths, as well as from Great Britain itself, and uh, also from the United States. Montgomery was a um, taskmaster of the, of the highest order, and he was a perfectionist, and he demanded the vi- very highest uh, effort and quality from his men as well. He could also, as, as task-driven as he was and nitpicky as he was, he could also be incredibly inspiring. Upon his appointment to the 8th Army, he told his gathered men, quote, I want to impose on everyone that the bad times are over. They are finished. Our mandate from the Prime Minister is to destroy the Axis forces in North Africa. It can be done, and it will be done. End quote. Monty had been through some of the absolute worst battlefields, most grisly, inhumane, inhospitable places in the First World War. And so he believed very much that protecting the lives of his men was one of his top priorities and was basically done by waiting until everything was exactly ready before any attacks were made. At this, at, at times, this kind of mentality, this uh, almost delay, delay, delay uh, mentality would frustrate his men and his superiors alike, especially Churchill, who was notoriously impatient and wanted everything to happen at the speed that he himself thought of it. Uh, he, he basically gave Montgomery the directive to destroy the Nazi threat in North Africa completely, And then the caveat was, but with great haste. Montgomery, though, had almost unheard of insight into his opponent's situation, thanks to the ultra-code-breaking we had talked about. So his plan, which was uh, specifically designed to exploit Rommel's, uh, Rommel's weaknesses, was a excellent plan. And the preparedness that he went about uh, putting it together and the preparations that he made for it uh, speak very highly of him as an organized uh, commanding officer and a, a staff staff officer of, of the highest rank. Uh, using what he called a, quote, crumbling strategy, Montgomery planned on hitting the German line in a series of powerful jabs. With each new attack, he was forcing the Nazis to burn precious petrol simply from by going from one hot spot to the next. So if the, uh, if the battle line is 35 miles long, north to south, Montgomery's idea was to hit the north, where there would be intense fighting and draw in as much of the German armor as he could. And then, with an equally strong fist, he would hit the southern part of the line. And that would force the German armor to have to drive the 35 miles south. All the while, they are burning up one of their uh, main resources, the petrol and gasoline, that they, they just could not replace. And then also, during the fighting itself, they're burning up all that fuel and petrol as well. So it was, it was a one-two punch. And the idea was, was brilliant in terms of how it would affect Rommel's ability to create uh, offensive or... Or basically, it kept Rommel from being on the uh, on the offensive. It forced Rommel to be static. It forced him to be reactionary. 
and neither one of those were particularly how Rommel liked to fight. And to uh, make the first initial jab really count and keep as much of the armor penned down in the southern sector as possible and get them to use as much enemy fuel and burn it as possible in that first initial attack, the British went about creating, uh, basically foreshadowing what they would eventually do for the D-Day landings. They used incredible dummy water stations, dummy air towers, uh, dummy supply depots, even uh, inflatable armored units, uh, as well as fake radio chatter that was authentic in terms of it mimicking regular radio traffic between armored formations, though, that were completely fake. They didn't exist. But the Germans were forced to give them credence. They had to plan for them and treat them as if they were a, a, an existing group of armored units in the southern sector of the battlefield. So th- this this kind of time-consuming and costly uh, uh, tactic or strategy, this deception, it worked incredibly well, and and it really does foreshadow what the British, uh, what the Allied uh, forces do before D-Day. Because it was it was extremely successful. Rommel was forced to divide his armor, keep some of it in the south, and then when he realized that the the actual thrust of the first attack was coming in the north, he had to rush that armor from the southern sector right up to the north of the or the top of the battle line. So the plan was ready, the men knew their duty, and the battle was about to begin. That's going to wrap us up on part one of the second battle of El Alamein. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I know it's a lot of information, but it's pretty wildly interesting to me, and I hope it is to you. So that wraps us up there. I'm going to release the second part coming up, so stay tuned. And hopefully that's in your iTunes or whatever it is that you're using to listen to this as we speak. So stay tuned, hang out, hop over to the next episode.